Well, we return again this morning to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And as we turn there this morning, we discover that the Apostle Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has a word for us this morning about contentment. In the late 4th century B.C., the great conqueror, Alexander the Great, was systematically subduing the most powerful global force in the world at that time, the Persian Empire. In the span of just a few years, this king of Macedon had spread his reign from the relatively tiny peninsula in Greece as, to go as far south as Egypt in the upper Nile region, and then through the Turkish peninsula into Asia Minor, and then all across Israel and Mesopotamia through even what is now present-day Iran and Afghanistan, all the way to the Indus River Valley, modern-day India. Alexander had literally conquered the known world. And you'd think, as he stopped to survey and reflect upon the great vastness of his empire, that he would have experienced a, a sense of accomplishment, a, a sense of fulfillment. You'd expect that he'd be content with what he had managed to accomplish. But it's said that in a quote that is often attributed to John Milton, but whose true author is not known for certain, it's said that when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds to conquer. That story is similar to one that's told about the 19th century multimillionaire John D. Rockefeller. Adjusting for inflation, Rockefeller's oil business had made him what many considered today to be the single richest man in history, with his net worth in terms of today's dollars totaling at $340 billion. And it's said that someone once asked Mr. Rockefeller the question, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? His answer was quite honest and transparent. He said, just a little bit more. And that elusive nature of contentment is not isolated to these men. Our society today is plagued with the disease of discontentment. Just a few years ago, we saw the housing market go absolutely haywire because of how many people were not content to live within their means, but borrowed absurd amounts of money to live in a supersized dream home that they knew they could never afford or pay off. Credit card debt is expected of consumers today, as the average credit card debt per household in the United States totals at over $7,000 per household average. Not having the money to actually pay for things hasn't stopped the American consumer from going out and getting what he's just got to have as he's armed with that plastic card in his back pocket. People are discontent with the cars they drive so that every few years they upgrade to the newest model. We're discontent with all the cell phones and electronic gadgets that we have. So every season we're updating from or upgrading from the iPad 4 to the iPad 5, from the Samsung Galaxy 3 to the Samsung Galaxy 4, from the iPhone 5 to the iPhone 5S. I don't even know what that is. I would go with 6 after 5. And in fact, the entire television and advertising industries in their totality are built upon the principle of sowing discontentment in you. 
They're built upon convincing people that you all need something that you don't have. So you have to go out and buy it from them. And we could go on. People are discontent with their singleness. And so fornication, sex outside of marriage is rampant. People are discontent with their spouses. And so divorce and adultery is rampant. People are discontent with their current jobs and salaries. And so the work world is dominated by that atmosphere of cutthroatness. And as rich and as prosperous as our nation is, you'd, you'd think that we would be at least a little less discontent than we are. But that's not the case. And though we might not like to admit it, the church has not managed to keep discontentment from entering its four walls either. But in stark contrast to this society that is plagued with discontentment, the Bible calls Christians to a life of utter contentment. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, we've brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out either. If we've got food and covering, with these we shall be content. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 13 verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have. And even John the Baptist, as he came preaching the, his gospel of repentance for forgiveness of sins, was asked, well, what are those fruits in keeping with repentance? And to the soldiers, he said, among other things, be content with your wages. The great Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, in that marvelous treatise entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, defined Christian contentment as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. And I can't imagine a description more starkly in contrast with our society than that one. And so the question that we're confronted with is, how can we as the people of God go about pursuing that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that Burroughs writes about? That disposition that grates against the grain of the culture that surrounds us and grates against the grain of the remaining sin that is within us. And the answer must be to go to the Word of God. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul has a lesson about contentment that he desires to teach the people of God. And it's my hope that we can learn at least some of that lesson this morning. Now, that lesson about contentment comes in the context of Paul's closing remarks to the church at Philippi. In the previous paragraph, which Ron had, had read, Paul is completing his exhortations to his dear friends by summing up the main themes of his letter. And it's summed up in his call for spiritual stability, for true biblical steadfastness. And we've spent a number of weeks looking through the means of spiritual stability. How can I stand firm? And Ron mentioned a number of them. I'll mention just a, a, a few more. We, we spoke about the primary importance of unity within the body of Christ, verses 2 and 3. We spoke about the foundational significance of rejoicing in the Lord in verse 4. We saw that great necessity of letting our gentle spirit be manifest to all people, verse 5. 
We learned to banish anxiety from our lives by means of thankful prayer, verses 6 and 7. And in verses 8 and 9, we learned of the indispensability of godly thinking and how that plays such a fundamental role in the cultivating of godly living. But now that Paul has brought the body of his letter to a close, he turns in verses 10 to 20 to one of the main reasons for writing the letter to the Philippians in the first place, namely to thank them for the gift that the church had sent through Epaphroditus. You remember this note of historical context as Paul sat under house arrest in Rome, waiting to stand trial before the emperor Nero. News of his trying circumstances had reached this congregation at Philippi, and out of their love for their dear apostle, and in support of the gospel which he preached, the gospel by which they had all had been saved, the saints in Philippi purposed to send Epaphroditus on that 40 days journey from Philippi to Rome so that he could minister to Paul's needs and provide fellowship for him. But along with Epaphroditus, who would serve as a personal minister and friend to Paul and his circumstances, the Philippians also sent with him a financial gift to support Paul in his imprisonment. You see, in the Roman world, if a prisoner couldn't afford to pay for his living space and his meals, the Romans would simply leave him exposed to the elements while shackled outdoors. You might remember that at the end of the, the book of Acts, Luke says that Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. And so that monetary offering would provide the means for Paul to continue to rent his quarters and to pay for meals. And who knows, maybe even perhaps facilitate further gospel opportunities that he might be able to undertake and administrate even while imprisoned. And so as he writes back to the Philippians to encourage them as to his well-being and to exhort them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, he also wants to express his heartfelt thanks to his dear friends for their kind gift to him. And so what we have in verses 10 to 20 basically amounts to Paul's thank you note to the Philippians for their support of him in his trials. But because the Apostle Paul was a man who was so dominated by the Lord Jesus Christ, so dominated by the gospel, even the way that he writes his thank you notes proves both interesting and instructive for us. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, There is nothing I always feel about this great epistle which is more interesting than to, than to observe in detail the way in which the apostle does everything. And the way in which he offers his thanks to the members of, of the church at Philippi is full of instruction and interest. Paul is concerned even by means of something as seemingly mundane as a thank you note, to communicate to the Philippians that his great joy at receiving their gift didn't spring from discontentment on his part. He didn't want to give the impression that Christ himself was insufficient to sustain his joy in all circumstances. And so beneath the surface of this thank you note, Paul sets out to model for the Philippians what it looks like to be utterly content in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what circumstances he finds himself in. And it's not a stretch of the imagination to recognize that the Philippians needed to hear this message. Just a few verses earlier, he exhorted them to be anxious for nothing. 
And then he instructed them as to how they should experience the peace of God which passes all comprehension. And later in this thank you note in verse 19, he makes reference to their needs for which God will provide according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And so they, they're battling anxiety. They need peace and they have needs. And then when you consider that in the immediately preceding verse, in verse 9, Paul has exhorted them to practice what they had seen modeled in him, it's plain that he believed the Philippians could benefit from a lesson on what it meant to be content, even and especially in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances. And so, as he thanked them for their gift, he also indirectly offered himself as an example of true Christian contentment. And we can benefit from that same lesson as well, friends, as it is embodied, that lesson that is embodied in the example of the Apostle Paul. In the midst of our own present difficulties, whatever they may be, the challenges which we face from, from day to day, and in the midst of a society which is characterized by discontentment almost as a philosophy of life, we too need to learn the secret, as Paul says, of true contentment in Christ. So let's read our text this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, in this text, the beginning of Paul's thank you note to the Philippians, we discover four characteristics of Christian contentment, four spiritual truths that will aid us in learning the secret of being truly content in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first characteristic of Christian contentment that we see in this text is that contentment springs from a patient trust in the sovereign providence of God. Contentment springs from a patient trust in the sovereign providence of God. Look again at verse 10. Paul writes, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. You see, by the time Paul was writing this letter, over 10 years had passed from the, the first time that he had founded, the time that he had founded the, the church of Philippi, as we see recorded in Acts 16. And right from the start, the Philippians had outdone the rest of the churches by financially supporting the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. If you look down in, to verse 15 of chapter 4 in Philippians, Paul says, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And the reason that Thessalonica is so important is because Thessalonica was Paul's very next stop after he had left Philippi. So the Philippians were committed to gospel partnership with the Apostle Paul from the very beginning. As soon as he left them, they sent money. And he says they did it more than once. 
And that was something that no other church had done. But as I said, since that time, many years had passed. And though there may have been other times on the in-between that the Philippians were able to support Paul, the text implies that at the very least, a, a considerable amount of time had passed since their last gift. Paul says that he rejoiced that now at last they had revived their concern for him. And as the Philippians read that phrase, now at last, they may have wondered to themselves if Paul was issuing them a subtle rebuke for waiting so long. You know, you've all been thanked like that one time or another before, right? Oh, thank you. You, you finally remembered me <laughs> and decided to send me some help. Took you long enough. But you see, Paul was such a tactful, socially aware Christian gentleman that he anticipated that misconception. And he assured the Philippians that that was not his intent at all. And he communicates that in a number of ways. First, he describes their gift as a manifestation of the revival of their concern for him. And the Greek word translated revived in the NAS is a horticultural or botanical term that was used in extra-biblical Greek of a bush or a tree blossoming again in the springtime after a period of dormancy through the winter. And even though we don't have long winters here in Southern California, we can all understand what that's about. Just outside our bedroom window in our apartment complex, there's a, a view of a row of crepe myrtle trees whose green leaves and pink flowers make the most beautiful contrast against the backdrop of the clear blue sky on a nice clear morning. And they're such a sight to behold that sometimes just looking at them is enough to put you in a good mood. But in December and January, all the leaves and all the flowers fall off and the once beautiful trees are left with bare branches. And at that time of year, looking at those trees is actually kind of depressing. But in late February or maybe early March, those branches begin to bud again. And usually at some point, Jana will call my attention to it and with a smile say, the flowers on the trees are budding. And we rejoice with great acclamation. Well, that's the image that Paul is using here. During those winter months when there are no leaves or flowers on those trees, life nevertheless remains in those trees. There's still sap flowing through the branches even though other signs of life may not be apparent. And we see that life revived, if you will, in springtime when it begins to bud again. So Paul is saying... I know that the life of your concern for me has been there all along, Philippians, even if it's revived only recently. And then he even goes on to say explicitly, indeed, you were concerned before. You were concerned. He uses a form of the verb that speaks of uh, the passage of time. You had been concerned all this time. The problem was you lacked opportunity. Now, the commentators have offered various suggestions as to why the Philippians lacked opportunity. Maybe they weren't aware of Paul's needs. Maybe they didn't know precisely where he was or how to get a hold of him. He moved around a lot. Perhaps they didn't have a suitable messenger to bring their gift to him. I mean, Epaphroditus was a, a quality man who could make a 40 days journey on which he almost died, we learned from Philippians chapter 2. Maybe they were just so financially pressed that they had nothing to give. 2 Corinthians 8 describes the churches of Macedonia as being in deep poverty. But whatever it was, whatever the circumstance was that made them lack opportunity, Paul is clear that it was not 
their fault. They were not to blame for that. Now, that kind of magnanimous attitude reflects Paul's patient trust in the sovereign providence of God. The entire time in between the instances in which he received help from the Philippians, he wasn't sitting there, arms crossed and tapping his foot, saying, those Philippians, man, I can't believe they haven't got on it yet. Wasn't frustrated, wasn't questioning their love for him, as some of us may be want to do. Still less was he panicking, stressed out, figuring, how am I going to get, how am I going to rent these quarters next month? How is this going to happen? I can't believe I'm in Nero's trials coming up. What am I going to do? He's not stressed out like that. He knew that his God was on the throne of the universe, that he was and is absolutely sovereign over every detail that happens. You see, friends, one of the greatest keys to enjoying true contentment is a rock-solid trust in the absolute sovereignty of God. You say, how sovereign? Absolutely sovereign. Well, yeah, but only in the big stuff, right? I mean, God's got better things to do than to be concerned with the trivial matters of my day-to-day life. Wrong. What does Romans 8.28 say? And we know that God causes some things, the big things, Well done. All things. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. In fact, just a few months before Paul would write the letter to the Philippians, he wrote the book of Ephesians. And in that letter, he penned Ephesians 1.11, which describes God as the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. The counsel of his will refers to his decree. God has a decree, a plan, which he has purposed before the foundations of the world. And everything that happens in history is working out according to that plan. And of course, Paul was just echoing the teaching of the Lord Jesus, who when he was teaching his disciples not to fear even death if it should come in the course of following him, he asked his disciples, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. See, God is sovereign just over the big things? No way. The very hairs on your head are numbered. Sparrows are sold two for a penny, and not one of them dies apart from the sovereign providence of God. That great hymn says, Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth some things well. Jesus maybe just alloweth all things well. Jesus doeth all things well. Therein is my heavenly peace and divinest comfort. Friends, if we're going to know anything of the kind of life of contentment that Paul experienced in his own life, then we, like him, need this rock-solid foundation of the absolute sovereignty of God. And I'll be honest with you here. I have no idea how Arminians obey this command to be content. 
I mean, how could you be content and at peace if God is not in control of absolutely everything? A God who is not sovereign over absolutely everything is a God who cannot promise peace and comfort for your soul. It's out of his control, at least some of the time. But Paul can be content, and we can be content, whatever our circumstances, because we have a God who is working all things after the counsel of his own will and who promises to sovereignly govern every aspect of this universe in such a way that it all works for your good, which he defines not as you might want to define it, but as to your true good and benefit, the ever in your ever-increasing conformity to the image of Christ himself your holiness, your sanctification. And so when circumstances come that would seem to tempt you to be discontent, you need to remember that in those circumstances, no matter how sharp they may seem, God is sovereign and he is purposefully intending to display his love and goodness to you through those circumstances. And therefore, it is your business, it is your task to look for that goodness in whatever those circumstances, to behold his glory somewhere put on display, and to look for the way in which you are to grow more in Christ-likeness. And what is the result of that robust understanding of God's sovereign providence? It's contentment. It is great joy. Look at the text. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Why? Calvin says it best. He says, because that man can never be poor in mind who is satisfied with the lot which has been assigned to him by God. That man can never be poor in mind who is satisfied with the lot which has been assigned to him by God. And note that Paul is not rejoicing in the gift. He's rejoicing in the giver of that gift, whom he acknowledges to be the Lord, another indication of Paul's trust in the sovereign provision of God. When he receives the Philippians' gift from Epaphroditus, he doesn't let his joy terminate on that gift, but recognizes that gift as ultimately from the Lord himself, recognizes that, that the Lord is sovereignly providing all things for his children by means of his church. And that is an exciting thought. Some of you are in a difficult circumstance, maybe even financially. Maybe a number of you are. Well, that's an opportunity for the rest of us to do what? To get in on God's plan of sovereignly ministering comfort and peace to his church, to his children by means of his church. We get to be a part of that if we're willing to be obedient. But even more than that, I, I believe that Paul says he rejoices in the Lord, not only because he understands that the Lord is the ultimate provider, and I think that that's true, but I think even more ultimately because of the glory of Christ that is displayed in the Philippians' obedience. Don't miss this here. This is precious. And when Paul saw their gift, or what Paul saw in their gift, was certainly a manifestation of their own concern and love for him. But more than that, their gift was a manifestation of the grace of God at work in their lives. God had so graced them to make Christ so glorious and so precious to them 
that they could count their money as loss for the sake of Christ and gladly give away their already meager resources for the sake of the gospel. You see, when the souls of God's people are so satisfied in Christ that they joyfully and sacrificially lay down their earthly treasure in the service of the gospel, Christ's glory is magnified. And so if you want to glorify Christ, dear friends, cultivate in your heart, cultivate your heart to find your satisfaction in Him, and then display that satisfaction by laying down your life in the service of God's people. And so Paul is content, even as he sits under house arrest, chained by the wrist to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. He rejoices greatly because he patiently trusts in the sovereign providence of God. The second characteristic of Christian contentment is that true contentment is independent of the circumstances of life. It's independent of the circumstances of life. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul has already anticipated one misinterpretation of what he's saying in verse 10, thinking, oh, they may think that I'm, I'm sitting here annoyed at them for not getting back to me sooner. But here in verse 11, he seeks to correct another potential misunderstanding. He says, not that I speak from want. In other words, please don't misunderstand my enthusiasm. Yes, when I received your gift from Epaphroditus, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. But that comment, that remark, that enthusiasm, that's not me trying to manipulate you into sending another gift soon. Neither was I rejoicing, particularly at the improvement of my financial situation. That's not where my joy is. My joy, my contentment is not in my circumstances. In fact, I've learned to be content in whatever my circumstances, he says. You see, Paul wasn't someone who found his satisfaction in a healthy bank account. Paul's joy isn't the joy of someone who's just found out he's won the lottery. You see that. People found out they've won an absurd amount of money and they freak out and they're just absolutely ecstatic. Paul says, that's not my joy. My joy is not the one of the game show contestant whose heart is fixed on a prize winning. His joy, his satisfaction, his contentment are rooted much deeper than that. And he believes that he would do a disservice to the Philippians if he were to mislead them to believe otherwise. And so he adds this qualification, not that I speak from want. And it's here that we learn that true Christian contentment is independent of the circumstances of life. Now notice that I didn't say that it was indifferent to the circumstances of life. There was a popular philosophy in Paul's day called Stoicism that taught that to be content was to learn to be indifferent to circumstances, to cultivate such an emotional detachment, such a universal apathy, 
that no matter what happened to you, you were to be truly unaffected. You were simply not to care. You were to grin and bear it. You were to cultivate a numbness to all physical and emotional pain. And they taught that the man who's done that is the wise man. But I ask you, friends, can you think of a description that is any further away from the Apostle Paul, especially as we observe him in this epistle, in this letter, the letter to the Philippians, where the depth of Paul's emotions are displayed almost without parallel in the New Testament, where he speaks of longing for his brothers and sisters with the affection of Christ Jesus, where he speaks of having sorrow upon sorrow if Epaphroditus were to die where he speaks of weeping over the enemies of the cross of Christ who've turned away from Christ and who are now headed for destruction. A letter where he repeats the term beloved throughout. Beloved, those whom I love. Paul was no stoic. He was not indifferent to circumstances. But his contentment was independent from circumstances. No matter what was happening around him, no matter what was happening to him, his contentment was stable. And as we'll see in verse 12, Paul's life ran the gamut of circumstances. There were times when he had plenty, and there were times when it was all taken away from him. There were good times and bad times. There were easy times, there were difficult times. But the change in circumstances didn't make one bit of difference in his contentment. He was not mastered by any of the circumstances in which he found himself. In every situation, his happiness, his joy, his satisfaction were solidly grounded in something circumstances couldn't touch. You say, how is that possible? How did Paul get to a place where his contentment wasn't touched by circumstances? Paul says he learned it. He learned it. Verse 11, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. You see, contentment is not a virtue that is natural to mankind. It must be learned. It must be cultivated. I love the way Charles Spurgeon illustrates this. He says, you will see at once that contentment in all states is not a natural propensity of man. Ill weeds grow rapidly. Covetousness, discontent, and murmuring are as natural to man as thorns are to the soil. You have no need to sow thistles and brambles. They come up naturally enough because they're native to the earth upon which rests this curse. In the same way, you have no need to teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. But the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. If we would have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be the garden and all the gardener's care. Now, contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. It will not grow in us by nature. It is the new nature alone that can produce it. And even then, we must be especially careful and watchful that we maintain and cultivate the divine grace which God has sown in it. And then he says, do not indulge, any of you, the silly notion that you can be contented without learning or learn without discipline. It is not a power that may be exercised naturally, but a science to be acquired gradually. 
End quote. We know that it's a science to be acquired gradually because Paul uses the form of the Greek verb again that communicates that he had learned this lesson over time and that its benefits are still present within the forefront of his mind. In fact, in verse 12, he borrows a word that was used in the pagan mystery religions that meant to be initiated into the secrets. Paul says, this is insider knowledge right here. But unlike the mystery religions. He didn't learn this secret by some ecstatic experience or by achieving some sort of elite religious status. No, he learned this secret in the laboratory of life experiences as he walked through life as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and in constant communion with him. Paul learned to be content through God's own dealings with him. He learned, as we said before, that God is in control of all things. He learned that God was working all things for his good. And he learned to trust those truths. He learned that his experiences and circumstances were the gifts of the sovereign providence of God. And that he could be satisfied in what his father had given him. He learned as he pled with the Lord to remove the thorn from his side that God's grace is sufficient for his people in times of trial and that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. He learned. So what did he say? 2 Corinthians 12.10. Therefore, if God's power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak in my own strength, then I am strong in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the secret. I've been hinting at it all along, but here I want to say it explicitly. Paul could be content in any and every circumstance, no matter how much those circumstances fluctuated, because he found his joy and his satisfaction in something, or better said, in someone that never changes, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the third characteristic of Christian contentment. True contentment, number three, is satisfied in the surpassing value of Christ. True contentment is satisfied in the surpassing value of Christ. And this, of course, anticipates what Paul says in verse 13. We'll camp out there for just a bit later, but he, just to say it now, to sort of foreshadow it now, he says, I can do all things. In other words, I can be content in all circumstances through Christ who strengthens me. But aside from pointing ahead to verse 13, that, also, that truth also looks back to other statements that Paul has made earlier in the book of Philippians. You remember in chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, that great sentence that so succinctly summarizes the entirety of the Christian life. Paul says that his eager expectation and his confident hope is that Christ will be glorified in his body, whether he lives or whether he dies. And he says that he can be sure that Christ will be magnified in his body because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when we studied that passage together, we saw that to die is gain means to survey all the wonderful things that death can take from us 
And to prefer Christ is more valuable than those things, such that the loss of those things can be called gain because we get Him. And in the same way, to live as Christ means to survey all the wonderful things that this life can offer and to prefer Christ as more valuable, such that everything else in your life is dispensable. It has no hold on your affections. If it becomes plain that for you, following the Lord Jesus will mean loosening your grip on those things and maybe even losing those things, then in the language of Philippians 3.8, you count all those things as loss in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus your Lord. Now you see, if that describes you, if for you to live is Christ, if your satisfaction is in the surpassing value of knowing Christ, then when circumstances require you to get along with humble means, when money goes, when food maybe goes, when the house goes, even when friends and family go, Though you feel the sting of that loss, you're not a stoic. Though you feel the hunger pangs, though you face the real practical hardships of life in a fallen world, you are still content. You are still content. In the face of all of that loss, you can still behold Christ with the eyes of faith and cry, gain, gain. Because your satisfaction at its most fundamental level, isn't in the things that you've lost. It's in Christ. And He will never change. He will never leave. That's why Scripture says what it does in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Turn there with me. The letter to the Hebrews chapter 13, the final chapter, and verse 5. The writer says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. And we could insert free from the love of stuff, free from the love of toys, free from the love of gadgets, free from the love of houses, free from the love of cars, free from the love of filet mignon steaks. <laughs> and I mean it there. We, we've grown accustomed to eating well. What if that should be taken from us? Make sure your character is free from the love of all those good things that God may give you to enjoy, just not ultimately. Make sure your character is free from the love of money, being what? Content with what you have. Okay, why, writer of Hebrews, what is the basis for my contentment? Why can I be content with what I have? For or because... He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. You see the way Scripture reasons there? You can be free from the discontentment that is inherent in the love of money or in the love of any other idol. And you can be content with what you have because what you have is God. You can count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. You see, friends, contentment is a matter of proper worship. It's a matter of proper worship. 
We do not worship the things that our circumstances bring us. We worship Christ. And so if the Lord decides to change our circumstances such that the comforts that we had been enjoying lawfully have been taken away from us, our contentment is untouched because our satisfaction is in Christ. He will never leave us and he will never forsake us. We have him. That is the secret of contentment. And when you know that secret, and when you live like it's true, then you, along with the Apostle Paul, will be able to say, verse 12, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. You know how because you know Christ. And because you are more satisfied by Christ than by all that life can offer you and by all that suffering can take from you. When that is true of you, you'll be able to be content with little. Paul says he knows how to be brought low. He's learned the secret of going hungry and of suffering need without losing his contentment. And we know it's true for Paul. Paul was no ivory tower theoretician. He was writing from a Roman prison, chained to a Roman soldier, maligned by fellow preachers in Rome, and prohibited from ministering the gospel freely, which was his great longing. And even when he wasn't in prison, life on the outside wasn't all that much different. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. 27, while he was ministering freely, he writes, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. In 1 Corinthians 4.11, he says, To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And a few verses later, he'd summarize it all by saying, We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. And you say, How do you feel about all that, Paul? And he says, I count food, I count drink, I count fine clothing, I count respectful treatment, and I even count a place to lay my head. All the things that I've lost for Christ, I count it all as refuse so that I may gain Christ. And gaining Christ, I am content. That's how I feel. And friend, when the Lord providentially governs your circumstances so that you feel that your spouse or your children don't appreciate you, so that you feel that you're undervalued at work when, when someone else is giving the promotion that you believe you deserved, when someone else advances to a place in ministry even that you felt should have been your own, when you suffer the loss of all things on the path of obedience to Christ, dear friend, you can be content because your pleasure and your satisfaction is Christ. And he is ever yours. And Paul says that that's not only the secret of being content with little. That's the secret of being content with much. He also says in verse 12 that he knows how to abound, how to be well fed, and how to have abundance. And you say, isn't it easy to be content with abundance? Well, it may be easier to be content in circumstances when you have abundance. But precisely because of that, it is actually often much more difficult to find your contentment in Christ 
when you have an abundance of other things to put your confidence in. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, how difficult it is for the wealthy person not to feel complete independence of God. When we are rich and can arrange and manipulate everything, we tend to forget God. Most of us remember Him when we're down. When we are in need, we begin to pray. But when we have everything we need, how easy it is to forget God. That's why Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because the seductive power of riches is in getting you to put your trust in the riches, in giving the money your heart, in being secure and comfortable in it, and not in Christ. And that's why Jesus says you cannot serve God and money. No man can serve two masters. See, knowing how to abound means knowing how to enjoy the blessings of God's good gifts while still finding satisfaction in the giver. It means understanding what Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, that not even when one has an abundance does life consist in his possessions. Knowing how to abound means living consistently with the reality that even when abundance is present, that is not what your life is about. It is not what secures your happiness. You know how to abound when you can hold your abundance loosely, when it doesn't have a grip on your heart, when you can enjoy it while the whole time being perfectly prepared to part with it if it should be the Lord's will to take it from you. That's how to live not mastered by anything. Not as a stoic, not refusing to enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. I don't care. I don't care. Unaffected physically and emotionally unaffected, above the fray. No, enjoying the good gifts that God gives you. He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy and is to be given thanksgiving in everything. But there's a way to worship the gift. And then there's a way to worship the giver in the gift. And we're called to the latter. Contentment is the latter. Now, you who are blessed with a season of abundance from the Lord, even at this present time, I ask you, do you know how to abound? Do you enjoy God's gifts for the sake of the giver? Enjoying them all for what they show of God to the eyes of your heart? Or in your abundance, has your heart become proud and have you forgotten the Lord your God who redeemed you from the house of slavery? Moses says that to Israel, Deuteronomy 8. When you've eaten and are well-fed and are satisfied, don't forget the Lord your God who has redeemed you from slavery. Remember, you were slaves. You are not self-sufficient. And though we weren't slaves in Egypt, we were slaves to a much greater taskmaster to sin. And that should deflate every and all, every ounce of pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency that might be a remnant in our heart. We were slaves, and the Lord our God redeemed us. And so if in your abundance your heart has become proud, my friend, don't fool yourself into believing that you're content. Contentment, got that down. I'm not worried about things. I'm going to sit in my Lexus and my Ferrari. It's kind of a big gap there. <laughs> Ferrari, Lamborghini, Mercedes maybe, bring it down more towards reality there. I'm going to sit in those heated seats and I am all right. 
content. You're not content. Or if you are, you're not content in Christ, and therefore you don't lay claim to the promises that this passage speaks about. If your satisfaction is not in Christ, you're just an idolater, happy with his idols, using Christ as a means to get your real God, to get what you really want. And if that's you, I would just invite you to repent. Confess your idolatry and discontentment to God. Own it. Tell him, that's me. Lord, I'm an idolater. I confess that I am not content. And turn to him and ask him to open your eyes to behold the loveliness of Christ. Because true contentment is independent of the circumstances of this life only when you are satisfied in the surpassing value of Christ. Well, finally, come to our fourth characteristic of Christian contentment. True contentment trusts in the sovereign providence of God. It is independent of the circumstances of life. It is satisfied in the surpassing value of Christ. And fourth, it is fueled by the strength of our Savior. It is fueled by the strength of our Savior. And we see this in verse 13. I can do all things through him, or better translated, in him who strengthens me. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And I hope that as we come to this very familiar verse in its context, you can see for yourselves what violence this text has suffered at the hands of those who've treated it like a triumphalistic mantra of personal fulfillment. This might be the most popular verse at every Christian sporting event. In fact, the church that Jana and I came from back in New Jersey meets in the gym of a Christian school, and uh, where that was where the basketball games were played, much like here, except for the hoops were still hanging from the ceiling like we used to have. And it, what always made me laugh about that is that, well, there was this banner. There was the banner on the wall, probably 30 feet wide, maybe as long as the span between the, that, that main panel right there in the back. And it said, you know, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, the, the KJV translation. And what always made me laugh about that is that if both teams are from Christian schools, <laughs> which they often were, the members of both of those teams are looking at that banner and claiming the promise to be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens them. You got one kid thinking, I can slam dunk over this kid through Christ who strengthens me. And you've got that, that guy that is guarding him saying, I can block this kid's slam dunk through Christ who strengthens me. But at the end of every game, one of the teams always loses. They could not do all things through Christ who strengthens them. Well, I hope you see how foolish that is. This was not a triumphalistic mantra of personal fulfillment. It does not promise us a sort of mini omnipotence in order to fulfill our worldly ambitions. When we read the, this precious text in its context, we see plainly that Paul is saying that he can experience all of those circumstances of being well-fed and being in hunger, of having abundance and suffering need with contentment. What this verse teaches is that the Christian's contentment is fueled by the strength of our Savior. See, again, Paul was no Stoic. Stoicism taught that the contented person was the one who was, quote, sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. No, Paul was sufficient. He was content, but his was not a self-sufficiency. His sufficiency was entirely due to the sufficiency of another. His sufficiency was Christ's sufficiency. 
not self-sufficiency. And the translators uniformly render this verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a legitimate option. But an even more literal translation is, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And that would fit entirely with the way Paul uses this phrase, this motif of being in Christ, in him, everything through union with Christ. That is what he's drawing paramount attention to. He's saying that when he reached the limit of his resources and strength, even to the point of death, he was infused with the strength of Christ that came through his union to him by faith. Commentator William Hendrickson wrote, The Lord is for Paul the fountain of wisdom, the fountain of encouragement, and the fountain of energy, actually infusing strength into him for every need. And quickly, where did this strength come from? How is it that the believer can experience this infusing of strength and power into our own souls? How can we experience this enabling us to be content in any circumstance? Well, it's not only in union with Christ, but also in communion with Christ. That's a real important extra thing to say. Jeremiah Burroughs, who we, we quoted at the beginning of the, the time here, said that we draw strength from Christ as we act our faith upon him. And I love how active that phrase is. We must act our faith upon Christ. It means we have to, to trust him. But even trusting sounds so ethereal sometimes, just so mind-gamey. We need to act our faith upon him. We have to trust that he is for us all that his word says he is for us. And we won't know the full breadth and depth of what he is for us if we don't maintain communion with him through prayer and study of the scriptures. Again, Lloyd-Jones puts it simply, as he so often does. What I have to do, he says, is go to Christ. I must spend my time with him. I must meditate upon him. I must get to know him. That was Paul's ambition, that I might know him, he says, quoting Philippians 3. I must maintain my contact and communion with Christ, and I must concentrate on knowing him. Can I put it this way? We will never be fueled by the strength of our Savior unless we are satisfied with his surpassing value. That's just putting points three and four in relationship. We will never be fueled by the strength of our Savior, point four, unless we are, point three, satisfied with his surpassing value. And we will never be satisfied with his surpassing value if we don't go and taste and see that surpassing value is infallibly displayed for us in the inerrant scriptures. And so divine strength for contentment comes from meditation upon and communion with the Savior. But it also comes from obedience to his word. We can't expect to enjoy the peace and contentment that are found in Christ Jesus if we're being disobedient to his word. If we're walking in sin, we shouldn't be surprised when we experience the unrest of anxiety and discontentment. Disobedient people should be discontent. Divine strength comes from communion with Christ, but disobedience severs communion with Christ. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And so we can't expect to be fueled by the strength of our Savior when we aren't doing the things that our Savior is telling us. Because he's not just our Savior, he's also our Lord, our Master. Well, we've seen that true contentment trusts in the sovereign providence of God, that it is independent of the circumstances of life, 
that it is satisfied in the surpassing value of Christ and that it's fueled by the strength of our Savior. It's not to be found in an ever-growing bank account. It's not to be found aboard a cruise ship, in a boathouse, or in a summer home, or in a relaxing retirement. Contentment is not found in the office of a CEO, or in the front seat of a fancy car, or in the many rooms of a Beverly Hills mansion. Friends, contentment isn't even found merely in the relationships that we have with our friends and family. Because even friends and family disappoint. Even they go away. And even they will eventually pass away from us into eternity. Contentment is found in one place. In one place only. And that is in Christ Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning as you listen to God's word preached. You're aware of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Your conscience is pricked. You recognize that you don't have a contentment that rises above circumstances. You recognize that your satisfaction does not finally terminate on Christ. That for you, to live is not Christ. To live is money, maybe. To live is marriage. Or to live is singleness. To live is sex. To live is alcohol. To live is partying. To live is self-commendation and pride. Make me feel good about myself. Make me feel recognized. Or any number of the idols of your heart. My friend, you have no contentment because you are not fueled by the divine strength of a Savior because that strength comes only through union with Him. And as you cling to your sin and to your own self-righteousness, you don't find yourself in Him this morning, but outside of Him. But friend, I have good news for you. You can be in him. The door of gospel mercy stands yet wide open. It's not too late. The Lord Jesus Christ, we celebrated last Sunday, died on the cross on Good Friday, bearing the wrath of Almighty God, his own Father, for your sin. All of the sin of all those who would ever believe in Christ was counted to be his on that cross on Good Friday. And so the same suffering, the same wrath that I would have suffered in hell for eternity was exercised on Christ on that Friday afternoon. And as he died, the infinitely righteous one, the one who was perfectly righteous, the one who had never disobeyed God, the one who lived the life that you were commanded to live but couldn't live, as life crept away from him, darkness fell over the earth, and he cried out, it is finished. It stands accomplished. All that is necessary for salvation is done. And Sunday, three days later, he rose from that grave, triumphant over sin and death, showing that that penalty had been paid. It was God's receipt, paid in full. His sacrifice was accepted because he was no longer subject to the power of death. And now the promise is that for you who turn from your sin, you who turn from pursuing your life and your love in everything but Christ, return to Christ and put your trust in him and not only forsaking all other loves, but forsaking all other good works, things that you think commend you to God. You're not a bad person. You do all these things right. You don't hurt your family. You don't do wrong by your friends. You're a faithful, loyal friend. Doesn't matter. Because the standard is perfection, not good. Good people go to hell. Perfect people go to heaven. And I doubt you would lay claim to perfection. No, you need perfection to be counted to you. 
to be transferred to your account. And that happens when you believe that Christ's perfection is all that you will need to avail in the courtroom of God. So turn from your sin. Put your trust in Christ. Find contentment. Pray with me. And there it is, Father. There is contentment in your Son, wrapped up in him. How all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. Would you seal it to our hearts? Would you save those whom you mean to save here this morning? Grant the gift of the new birth, the miracle of regeneration through the preached word, through the gospel. And grant for those of us who know you that we would learn the secret of being content in whatever circumstances we are because we are more satisfied by Christ than all that life can offer and all that suffering and death can take. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.